Yo. Love Talk Radio. Love Talk Radio. This is All About Wine, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some, some big people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. <laughs> Thanks, best people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah. We are live. Welcome. Oh, Blog Talk Radio and go into chat on Blog Talk Radio. Forgot about that. Another live version of All About Wine. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, tune in every Thursday night. That's right. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday, January the 30th, 2020, at 7.01 p.m. So if you're listening to this at any other time, then you listen to us not live, but recorded. But that's okay. You can't call in, but everything will be the same. So um, nothing new. Mike and I were talking before the show, and absolutely nothing is new. We're in the dog days of winter where nothing happens. Just like the dog days of summer in August when there's nothing going on and you just sort of sit around and look forward to something happening. That's where we are in the winter right now. We're in the dog days of winter. Although we have the Super Bowl coming up Sunday, it is still the dog days of winter, January. So if you're snowed in, then give you an opportunity to just stream a bunch of past episodes of All About Wine. And I was talking to my daughter the other day, and she uh, lives in Ogden, Utah, and she said that they're having a very, very mild winter there. And talked to my sister, who lives in Kansas City, Missouri, or just north, and she says they're having a pretty harsh winter. So it's just sort of like the jet stream is flipped around a little bit and missing on the west side of the Rockies and hitting on the east side this year. But we're having nice weather here. It's, it's uh, typical, you know, highs in the 70s, low 70s, and lows in the 50s, which is Florida in the winter in January. Uh, the pitchers and catchers for spring training report in a couple of weeks. So whenever the boys of summer start practice, then you know that it must be spring. So that's coming up real soon here. I think they report on the 15th or 13th or something like that. I don't have a calendar in front of me. But they report and start practicing for the, uh, the summer game of baseball. So we got that to look forward to. And let's see, what else in sports? Now, I haven't talked sports in a long time, although I know this is all about wine. 
Super Bowl Sunday, but after the Super Bowl, I think two weeks after Super Bowl or three weeks, something like that, the new XFL Football League starts again. They had it run, what was it, 10 years ago? Something like that. They have formed a set of teams now, and they are doing another season. Tampa has a team, the Tampa Vipers, and I think there's seven other teams that will be participating in the XFL this year. So basically the same rules as the NFL. Uh, There's a few minor different things, but basically the same thing as NFL. And some old NFL players and some new younger guys that uh, didn't quite make it. And some that are good enough to make it, but there's no spots for them. So it might be something interesting. Get your football fix continuing on in for, I think, a, 10-week schedule? I'm not sure on that either. i just been glancing at the articles on the XFL. So, if you're interested in football, that will continue. Just before we get into the main meat of the program, something I want to came in the paper here a few days ago, and I want to pass on to you. I have talked about the Spotted Lanternfly, which is a new vineyard pest, and it's hitting really, really hard up in Pennsylvania. I mean, like, really, really hard. They're trying to control it. They're trying to keep it within the boundaries of Pennsylvania. If this pest starts working its way east, it could get into the vineyards in Western New York, which is a lot of Welch's grapes there, and that could be devastating. But this article was in the paper, and well, basically, it's the study says spotted lanternfly costing Pennsylvania fifty million dollars annually. It says it's an invasive species from Asia that's wrecking havoc on valuable trees and vines. And it's costing the Pennsylvania economy about $50 million and eliminating nearly 500 jobs each year. This is according to a new Penn State study. Uh, This is the first attempt to quantify the destruction caused by this uh, Plant hopper, and it's it's a big one. It's a large plant hopper for plant hoppers. Go. It was first detected in the United States in 2014 in Berks County, Pennsylvania, and has since uh, taken over the southeastern corner of the state and has spread into New Jersey, Delaware, and Virginia. Virginia is concerned because of their big wine industry there and the crops and everything. And so that's something that Virginia is seriously, seriously watching. Economists in Penn State's College of Agricultural Sciences estimate the financial impact on industries most susceptible includes nurseries, vineyards, Christmas tree growers, and hardwood producers. Is in the state's hardest southeast the imposes $29 million in direct costs on growers and forest landowners, according to the study. Secondary costs means reduced businesses and household spending, which represents another 
21 million dollars a year. They're estimating that if this insect were to expand statewide, it could cause up to 325 million dollars in damage and wipe out as many as 2,800 jobs. The 19 billion dollar forest products industry would be particularly vulnerable to the spotted lanternfly. Pennsylvania has big unbroken stretches of forest and because of that it would be easy for the lanternfly to go from one tree stand to the next. It doesn't have anything, any barriers to stop it. It's um, also Pennsylvania is the number one, the nation's number one producer of hardwoods. It's uh, believed that the bug itself weakens the trees. It doesn't necessarily kill them, but it weakens them to the point where they uh, can't survive and they can fall over with any type of winds or anything else. Uh, it's uh, particularly trees, maple, oak, and black walnut, which uh, good building materials, trees there. It could limit the imports from Pennsylvania, and they are working very hard on trying to stop the spread of this bug. Uh, scientists have been testing chemicals and biological methods, and the government has also uh, have contractors removing trees uh, of the uh, invasive trees that the lanternflies prefer as hoes from public property. So if it gets to a certain point, it won't be able to spread over to another one very easily. So the Spotted lanternfly. I've mentioned in the program before. I brought it up before and about vineyards in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. I think I first reported this. And now they're saying it's much, much worse and affecting a lot more in the state. So, uh, don't know. Don't know what's going to happen. If I hear anything else, I will pass it on. Minerality. Are you familiar with that? A lot of people are. They've heard it in descriptions of wine, some of the labels you pick up, uh, a nice minerality. And I've had people come into the winery in the past, ask me, you know, what is minerality? And my response is usually something that people make up. You don't need to worry about it, which was just an easy escape from trying to really explain what minerality is. Uh, a little bit more complicated than just saying it's a, a, a smell of this or a taste of this or a uh, derivative of the soil or anything because that opens up a whole bunch of other questions, a whole bunch of other possibilities. So that being said, I'm going to try to tackle some minerality tonight. I've got a uh, a couple of three things uh, to talk about to read you here. Uh, the first one, and this one is from uh, one of my favorite wine books, The Science of Wine from Vine to Glass by Jamie Good, G O O D E. Uh, he is, uh, this is from the first edition. I'm going to do discuss some stuff from the second edition here shortly. Great book on wine, by the way, if you are looking for a not really scientific, but somewhat book on wine and the aspects of it and everything, I highly suggest this. So 
Uh, this is, uh, but before we get into that, my engineer just brought me this evening's wine. Hey, this is 19 Crimes, The Uprising. Okay, each declared by his majesty to be punishable on count, uh, on uh, convictions by transportations. This is uh, red wine aged 30 days in rum barrels, 15% alcohol by volume, and it's a proclamation. I don't know if you're familiar with the 19 Crime series of wines. There's there's a bunch of uh, different wines out there, and you can see them. They're reasonably priced. They're really pretty decent wines. This says... The Uprising, a new wine aged for 30 days in rum barrels, pays homage to Australia's Rum Rebellion in 1808. Due to the government's hindering of the rum trade, the rebellion was the only time a group of soldiers and citizens banded together to overthrow the government. A portion of this handcrafted wine has thus been aged for 30 days in rum barrels and is dark and with jammy flavors and a smoky finish. Download our Living Wine Labels AR app at hashtag Talking Bottles. It says to learn more about this and similar stories, please visit us at 19crimes.com. Nice series of wines, actually. And it's, you know, they've really picked up on this 19 Crimes and really done a great job with it. Imported and bottled by the TWE Imports Sonoma. Uh, it's uh, originally from southeastern Australia. Composition red wine, vintage 2017 ABV 15%, 750 ml. 19 crimes uprising. Now I say the uprising because they have different ones besides just that one, but the uprisings, this particular one. Let me see what this is like. Hmm. Nice nose. Dark. Dark fruitiness I'm getting from them. Plum. Black cherry. And plum. <laughs> Very pronounced a plum. Rather dark. And oh, some nice fruitiness, some nice flavors to that. No, I'm not picking up any minerality. Although most of the time you pick up minerality in white wines and not reds. It's a bit more difficult than reds. Oh, that's very nice. Very nice. Got some tannins, but not overwhelming. The acid is very well balanced. It's not real acidic. For those of you who go, oh, I can't drink red wines because it gives me heartburn. This one is really balanced on the on the acid, very well balanced. A little bit of tannin, it's got some nice fruitiness, dark fruit, that plumminess comes out in the aroma and in the taste, which really makes it nice. Uh, nice dark red wine. It and they 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 do one of my pet peeves here. They don't tell you what red grapes they're using, and I really wish they would on these things. But oh well. It's uh, very good. 19 Crimes, the Uprising. If you get an opportunity, I would recommend this. This is, and it's, you know, under the $20 range, I'm, I'm sure. So, 
There you go. Okay, now, going back to minerality. This is, again, Jamie Good. Uh, he's British, actually, and uh, he's a very good writer on this stuff. A lot of information in his books. You can get it on Amazon, I know. Uh, second edition is available on Amazon. I think it's around 20, between 20 and $25. I'm not sure exactly what it is. If you have prime free shipping. But he writes, Minerality is a frequently used descriptor in tasting notes, but it is a source of a lot of confusion. Where do mineral flavors come from if not the soil? One explanation could be the presence of reduced sulfur compounds described commonly by tasters as reduction flavors. And if you've ever heard that term reduction, this wine is, re, uh, you know, is, is, has some reduction flavors. That simply means that the sulfur compounds, it's reduction of sulfur compounds, which is sometimes used to describe minerality. Wine contains a wide range of these reduction flavors, which at certain levels in specific contexts can be mistaken for terror character. And we've talked about terror for those who are familiar with the word terror, T-E-R-R-O-I-R, terror. Terror is basically a French word. There's no English equivalent to the word terror. It simply means the presence of the soil, the weather, everything that goes into causing the grape vine to grow. Basically, the soil is the terror with the weather affecting it. So that's terror, terror characteristics. Uh, gentleman from the Institute uh, Cooperative Duvain in Montpelier uh, consults for a wide variety of wineries and his experience is that sulfur characters are often presented by winemakers as terror expression, which it isn't. Sulfur comes from, from the wine. His contention is that when sulfur compounds are managed better in the winery, suddenly the famous terror appears to be a luscious fruit source. Procession of these sulfur compounds depends a great deal on the context. He recalls a recent visit to a grower who had a dominant flinty character in his wine caused by a sulfur compound, despite trying to manage it in the winery. This was finally resolved by increasing the fruit expression in the wine, at which point the flint character became an attribute, not a fault. In other occasions, it's likely that sulfur compounds aren't the explanation of, for mineral flavors, and wines with high acidity levels are described as mineral by tasters seeking an apt descriptor. And that's an interesting line there. They're really not knowing what minerality is. They're finding, and this is something I find later on here, but since I'm mentioning it now, I'll continue. Sometimes minerality is used because it is it isn't other things. 
if that makes any sense to you. It isn't acidic. It isn't tannic. It isn't fruity. It isn't any other thing. So therefore, it's minerality that you taste and smell. And they say that this is used as a catch-all for what it isn't. Not what minerality is so much, but more of what it isn't. Now, and I thought that was a good description in itself. Uh, the uh, There's an interesting question of minerality is the perception of the rocks in the soil by the palate. All right. We hold geocentral tastings. It is a sort of taste training in which you actually touch, even taste different rocks to then be able to find the same sensations on the palate with the wine. For example, touching granite gives a a cold impression while limestone seems warm. And this is by uh, soil scientist Lydia uh, Bergogonian and her husband Claude who give classes and stuff on this. But warm and cold is not really minerality though is it and i would say not cold is the sensation of warm and cold it's either something that you're going to find that's going to be warm to the touch or cold to the touch and that's it it doesn't mean that it's a minerality if that were the case you can say oh this feels like granite because they just say that granite gives you the taste of cold. So, you know, what's the weather like? Whether weather today is granite? No, I don't think so. It's, it's stones or stones, and that's it, it. Doesn't really you can't interpret by licking a stone. It's not. Well, minerality is really a useful descriptor. Many of us use it frequently in our tasting notes. It's also a term that means different things to different people. And this is something else with minerality, too, that I have discovered through reading in reading up on this today. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, something I read up on this today. And also a term that means different things. I know what it means when I encounter some characteristics in wine that makes me think mineral. But I'm not sure what other people think. And this is... I think a problem with the word minerality is it the absence of other stuff? So therefore, you can't think of a word and call it minerality. Yeah, and some people do. Or is it high sulfites or sulfides with a D, not a T, which is two different things? It it could, well, like it described here, it could be like a medical condition when different underlying factors cause symptoms that look quite similar. You know, I mean, I've I've got a sore throat. I've got, you know, different symptoms. It could be any number of things. We don't know for sure. When you say minerality, it could be any number of things, but we really don't know for sure. Uh, It's 
also a way of praising some deliciously complex wines. Uh, long is another term that is thrown out, but I don't think it gets as much scrutiny as minerality does. But you hear, you hear the word long. This this wine is is a long wine has a uh, a, a long nose and stuff. And I think part of that is people just run out of descriptors, and so they throw in the word long, or they might throw in the word minerality just because they use up everything else they can think of. And I'll tell you what, there's been so many, so many strange descriptors for wine that I've seen over the years. I I tend to chuckle about them a lot. Um, engineer and I will have a glass of wine, and we'll, we'll joke about how this is uh, a certain flavor or taste that they describe on the bottle that just seems out of sorts. I don't know. I can't remember. Do you remember the one we... No, I was just thinking I can't. You can't remember it either. Yeah, she was hearing me and she couldn't think of it. But there was one that was really funny that we thought, well, this this is definitely... Yeah, and, and minerality could be part of that too. Uh, mineral uh, is interesting. It's this is from the editor of Decanter magazine, which I've got some more in-depth stuff to read you from Decanter shortly here. But it did not exist. The word minerality did not exist or mineral in wine tasting terms until the mid-1980s. And even later than that, in some circles, 1980 was rather early. During most of uh, his time in Paris, he didn't even run across the word or use the word. And because most French vineyards were overproducing, capitalizing, and doing all those things, which means minerality, which has to come from the soil and nothing else. And so they didn't look for it, so it wasn't present, which is true. You know, one of those things, if you're not looking for it, you're never going to see it. Now, we like to compare something like that to to a car. You drive around for 10 years in your your old uh, Chevy um, Nova. Nova, thank you. You drive around for 10 years, no Chevy Nova. You go out and you buy yourself a brand new car and get yourself a, a brand new Lexus and all of a sudden the road's full of Lexuses. You're saying, oh, well, there's another one, and there's another one, there, which you never noticed before. And this applies to all of you. You know what I'm talking about. If you're young, you can nod your head. Yeah, that's true, because that happens to everybody. You don't notice how many cars on the road of what you're driving until you get a one, and then you start saying, oh, well, there are a lot of these cars on the road. And this is what it is with minerality. You don't notice it until somebody starts bringing it up and everybody's starting to say, oh, yeah, this is mineral. And still not knowing really what it means. Uh, and, and this is what he says here. It's supposed to easier to describe what it is not than what it is. And that's what I was saying. He, he goes into other things. Uh, it's not fruit, not acidity, not tannin, nor oak, nor richness, not fleshiness. Not really a texture, uh, which you know hits sort of in the middle of the palate. The minerality says hits at the end, and so it's not all this other stuff. But you need to find something to describe it, so you call it minerality. Uh, tannin tends to.
poked them out, gripped them out. It's it's a dryness that you detect, and that's not mineral. Fruit. We know what fruit tastes like. We know the fruitiness of wines. I mean, everybody doesn't take much to find the fruitiness in a wine. So we know what the fruitiness is, but not really mineral. Um, wet stones is used a lot. But then again, that's something that you smell. You, you don't really taste. And you can smell wet stones. We know the smell of certain things of wet and dry. We know when you mow the grass, that smell. So you can say this is a grassiness, has a grassy aroma, simply from the fact that we've all smelled mowed lawns, wet stones after a rainstorm, uh, the, the smell and almost taste in the air after a, a storm, after a spring storm, you can get this unique smell and taste in your mouth from it. And part of that can be attributed to minerality. If you get that taste, you're, you're picking up mineral uh, because of the soil. The soil has been moist, and so you're picking up some minerality in, in the taste there. So, um, also slatiness, he mentions here, uh, especially when you start looking at the Moselle wines, they, they tend to be a little bit slaty, and uh, you don't smell anything fruity or vegetable or animal, uh, if so, you would probably use that, oh, well, we do wet dog, but I mean, it's just, there are certain certain things that we haven't started to pick up on and use. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the things I used to tell and say in my wine classes is that it's very difficult to understand a descriptor of a wine if you have never smelled it or tasted it yourself. If I describe minerality, I said this is this wine is it has a lot of minerality to it. Then you just sort of look at me, shrug your shoulders, and say, "Okay, if you say so." But you would have no way to associate or to understand what I'm talking about unless you actually know my description, which, like I just read, is one of the problems. It. There is no standard for minerality. And so that's why the word is confusing a lot. Uh, if I were to say this has a diesel aroma to it, then unless you've actually smelled diesel fuel, you would not know what I'm talking about. If I say this has a gassy smell to it, then you could probably understand because most people smell gas, but then not everyone smells diesel. So descriptions are only as good as what you are familiar with to describe something. Uh, <laughs> many cases, it is a pretty correct term to use minerality. Uh, it's it's a non-manipulated wine that hasn't been played with by the winemaker 
from organic viticulture, aromas and fruit being the sign of manipulation of the lack of expression of its origin. All right, that's sort of confusing in itself. No nonsense use is to describing wine marked by salty or mineral undertones, balancing but not hiding the fruit. Now, more white wines you're going to pick up minerality than you are reds. Reds uh, don't you don't get too much minerality in reds. If anything, some metallic undertones, but it's sort of a generic metallic undertone. And uh, what's a good example of metallic taste in the mouth? Everyone has had it, and I, I can't think of a good example, but everyone knows what I mean by metallic taste. Certain certain drugs you take can end up giving you a metallic taste in the mouth and stuff like that. Certain red wines sometimes give you that slight metallic undertone, or even copper. Uh, red wines can do a copper undertone to it too. Uh, I've tasted copper and quite a few red wines over the years. It's, it's something that comes out, I think, more so than any other mineral type note on it. White wines tend to be a little bit more mineral undertones than red. Uh, they compared 34 wine experts and trained panel looking at sorts of taste and smells that people describe as mineral. Okay, they did a, a study. They found widespread differences among the tasters. While there was some agreement about definitions uh, when the people were quizzed, the use of the term differed in practice. Interestingly, though, some of the subgroups use the term in similar ways, suggesting that there is a cultural basis for its use, simply stating that it means that when tasters use it in, say, the Burgundy region of, well, the, the, the Chablis region, since we'll, we'll talk about, when tasters use it to describe wines in the Chablis region of France, particularly Chardonnays, they, there's a general consensus on what it means. A French Chardonnay or French um, a French Chardonnay is, a French Chablis is usually described as mineral, uh, mineral undertones, uh, has a minerality to it. It's very common to describe that. And it's a pretty much universal on that, but different areas, uh, for example, on New Zealand. New Zealand has a lot of white wines, and the use of the term minerality to describe New Zealand whites is usually universal, or usually the same within New Zealand. Uh, when you get out of the area and you start going to different areas, the terminology starts to morph, if you will, into other things. Uh, minerals can be detected while tasting a wine. This is from an Olivier Humbrecht, uh, one of Alsace's leading wine growers. He's famous for his biodynamic viticulture. He says it is the 
fraction on the palate that makes the wine taste more saline or salty. High acids or, or high tannins do not mean that the wine has lots of minerality. High salt contents make the acidity more savory and therefore less aggressive. Good minerality makes one salivate and want to have another sip or glass or bottle. Great paragraph, but again, it doesn't really tell us. And then it starts talking about all the saltiness in a wine. I think that would be, well, I I, I can't really think of a wine that I've ever had that brought up any undertones of salt or sodium. I, I So, you know, I'm not sure what, what he's talking about here. I, I think that would be a counter flavor. If you all have had a salty undertones in your wines, please let me know because I can't recall anything that I have had. Now, since minerality is coming from the soil, because that's where the minerals are, it's not in the rain, it's not in the wind, it's not in anything else. So the only way a wine can pick up minerals to trans uh, uh, the vines to pick up minerals to transfer transfer it into the grapes, therefore transferring it into the wine itself is from the soil. That pretty much takes care of you know our source. But what type of soil? What what is it going to do? Well, there was a a German researcher back in 2000, Andreas Puch, uh, who took three different soils from the Franconian vineyards. He took the Los, the seashell lime, and the Cooper, uh, Cooper, and he collected vines and analyzed his chemical composition from these three and found that the different soil types Um, made a difference in the seashell lime soil, carbon, nitrogen, and calcium were present in the greatest concentrations. Sulfur, boron, magnesium, and sodium, and potassium were greatest in Cooper, and the concentrations of low soil were intermediate, halfway between most of those, but, you know, not overpowering in any area. Extractions of the soil resulted in a two-fold greater concentration of total solids in Cooper extract compared with uh, the seashell, and more than three-fold than in the lowest, which means that different soils are going to bring out, and especially if you start getting heavy rains and stuff like that on those soils, it's going to cause these soils to come out in more mineral into it. A few years ago, a California winemaker, Randall Graham, carried out some interesting experiments. He was trying to understand minerality better. He actually put some rocks into tanks of wine. However, these rocks were in a wine environment at low pH and are therefore likely to release more minerals. And the pH would obviously bring it out more than if it had been in the ground, just sitting in the ground. 
Rocks also have the side effect of raising the pH of the wine, which can also change the flavor. He said the experiments were incredibly simplistic and gross in comparison to the very subtle chemistry that occurs in mineral extraction in real soils. We simply took interesting rocks, washed them very well, smashed them up, and immersed them in a barrel of wine for a certain period until we felt that the wine had extracted some interesting flavors and we were able to discern significant differences between the various types. Minerality. He saw major changes in the texture and mouthfeel of the wine, as well as dramatic differences in aromatics, length, and persistence of flavor. He says, in every case, low doses of minerals added far more complexity and greater persistence on the palate. It's my personal belief that wines richer in minerals just present way differently. He also knows they seem to have a certain sort of nucleus or density around their center. They are gathered, focused, cohered the way a, lesser, uh, a laser coheres to light. There's a different kind of density relative to tannic density and somehow deeper in the wine than the tannins. So there is, you know, actually taking it to a level there that we never would and actually throwing the minerals in the tank and getting results from it. But again, he admitted himself it wasn't a control experiment. It was just, you know, well, let's try this rock, crunch, 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 and throw it in the tank. You know, and that's what was done. So some people use mineral to describe aromas of wine. It's something they get on the nose. Uh, it's, in reality, the presence of certain volatile sulfur compounds in the wine, which is also known as reduction. And we'll talk about reduction in the future here. What is reduction? You may have heard that term. Uh, I've heard and seen the term. And actually, I've used it before since I know what it is. But we'll talk about reduction in, in a future show here. In its most raw state, reduction is caused by hydrogen sulfide and smells like rotten eggs and sewers. Okay, this is, you're not going to find this in, in Finnish wine. Although, every once in a while, you have a wine that is bad, and you will pick up that very complex sulfide aroma that does smell like rotten eggs a little bit, and that's not a good thing. But uh, we will talk about reduction, like I say, in a, a, a future episode. Great white burgundies frequently show a little of this good reduction. Again, we're talking of the... Uh, white burgundies, and the Chablis. Some new world Chardonnay producers are now beginning to work out how to achieve this through the winemaking process. And they're linking uh, terror with certain yeast that yield the desired results. So it seems to be working there for them. Specific deficiencies of mineral. Let's see, is there something else I want to cover in this other part here? Well, here we go. This is interesting. Paul Draper of Ridge 
winery in California is a wine grower who believes in minerality from the soil, even in the face of questioning from scientists. He quotes, though I am well aware of what soil scientists say about minerals or other elements in the soil and the impossibility of them traveling through the vine and into the wine, the roots deep enough into those minerals are affected and the wine shows that effect. I think of minerality as a wet stone quality in a wine. So, this is great, this is wonderful, but minerals in the soil only are in the top layers, not down deep. Grapevines and grape plants send their roots very deep. They search for water. And there's, you know, if, if they have to, 20, 30 feet down into the soil past the top layers. The compounds produced in a living system are produced by enzymes. And many of these have metallic cofactors, such as magnesium and chlorophyll are manganese and magnesium cofactors and enzyme that build up monoterpene molecules. Okay, little high-end science there, but basically nutrients such as the metallic cofactors all come from the soil. Okay, now, certain layers of the soil down, there are no when you get deep down into it, the soil, you're not going to get this stuff broken down a whole bunch because it's just layers. And the soil has to react with the weather, hence terror, for it to break down, for it to break down to the components that can be picked up in the roots of a grapevine. Now, a good thing to think about on this is as the soils come to the surface and the winds and the weather and all that affects them, they do start to break down. They do start to release the micronutrients, which I just said here, like, you know, metallic cofactors like magnesium and chlorophyll. That's where you're going to get some of the minerals from the soil coming up toward the surface. So if the grapevines are picking up, the roots are picking up nutrients from the first 18 to 24 inches of soil, then minerality can be passed on according to what scientists say and what they're looking at. But if these roots go down deep, it cuts the possibility of minerality which then questions the great Chablis who have had vines there for hundreds of years and the roots have to be deep and yet they keep talking about the mineralities there. So the confusion of minerality continues. So while plants want to get far without chlorophyll, some of the flavor active compounds are flavor precursors are non-essential secondary metabolites. 
So it is expected that there might be some variation in the levels in great berries. But this is all speculation. It would be great to have someone study the topics of how the soil and the roots pick up on minerality. Now, I let me pull up. I got a couple of things here that I want to pull up that uh, is, yeah, okay. Here's one. This is from Decatur. Uh, I'm sorry, Decanter Magazine. Uh, Professor Alex Maltman has said it's been a long time since he has been asked to write more about, well, he's been asked, but he's going to answer about minerality. Uh, it's a term that's used that's confounded and fascinated us, but scientists aren't any closer to understanding what causes it than uh, anything else. So, Professor Alex Maltman, I think I think I'll read this to you. Simply, well, maybe not. I might skip over stuff, but there's some interesting stuff in here, and I don't want to miss. It says another article about minerality. It was more than 15 years ago that he wrote his first piece, and he's been asked to do quite a few since then, and he has read by countless different authors. There have been conferences, master classes, and workshops devoted to minerality and wine, and they still keep on coming. So what is so fascinating about this subject? Who knows, he writes, but maybe it's to do with the meddling of the pragmatic usefulness of the word love, a much loved link between wine and the land. That the word is attractive is clear, and not only with wine. Minerality is now reported from beef, tea, watercress, maple sugar, milk, oysters, and marijuana. So where are we now? Now, yeah. You know, Milk, minerality, and milk? <laughs> Maybe it's the vitamin D that they add. It always says vitamin D added. Maybe that's the minerals that we're detecting. Well, let me continue on. Well, let me editorialize. I, I'm very, I have to editorialize because I always do. Minerality in a wine. Now, we don't know minerals. The taste of minerals. The rocks have no taste. That they really don't. Uh, much to the, you know, <laughs> much to the argument of the couple that says that you know limestone tastes one way and and calcium tastes another way. Rocks have no taste. The rocks. They are. The only way you're going to extract is maybe beat it up and add it to something else. But then when you do that, you're adding another flavor to it. A lot of times, minerality in wine is compared to minerality in drinking water. And this is uh, probably the best way to understand it. You can have different bottled waters. And some of them say that it is mineral 
enhanced. Some say that it's from the mineral waters of whatever. And you can taste all those next to each other, do an actual taste test of different mineral waters, and you will see a difference. You will notice a subtle difference in the waters. And it doesn't take a sophisticated palate to tell that. You will notice a difference. And you will see a difference in the taste of each one of them. You're tasting mineral there. But what mineral? Uh, You don't know. It's so elusive that it's hard to say. You don't know what mineral that it is that's actually popping up in it. But it is mineral. So you're tasting the minerality there. So mineral water is a good example. If you want to see what mineral tastes like, then get yourself some mineral water. (coughs) Excuse me. Or even two or three different bottles or different types. And try that. And you can start seeing subtle differences in minerality. So do, do we sense it? It varies, okay. 20% of wine professionals detect a minerality in Chablis wines by taste, 16% by smell. I'm back to this article here. And the remainder use both senses. Interestingly, all three groups varied markedly in their assessment of the intensity of the mineral, and they described it differently. And you will, too, if you get a group of people together and do your mineral water taste. For instance, in the smell-only condition, about two-thirds correlated minerality with gunflint and reductive aromas and a lack of fruit. When uh, Nose clipped about the same proportion related minerality to acidity and bitterness, another investigation concluded that French tasters relied more on smell than those from New Zealand who tend to use both nose and palate. You know, we're we're back to, you know, okay. In a study at California's UC Davis, Riesling, Pinot Gris, and Sauvignon Blanc wines were judged to be more mineral than Chardonnay wines. And it's worth noting that the latter included Chablis, the classic mineral wine. Of course, the majority of wines are grafted, and it's actually the rootstock rather than the cultivar that interacts with the soil, but it feeds the cultivar. So that's, you know, it's a moot point, I think, bringing that up. So several studies have grouped the words people use to express minerality into categories. For example, acidity, tenseness, and freshness. This is a tense wine. That's always fun. Seashore-related things such as iodine, saltiness, and shellfish and stone-related sensations such as wet or hot stone, flint, and chalk. And then again, you're, you're relying these sensations on what you're familiar with. Uh, what, what is chalk to people? Uh, chalkboard chalk, writing, and that's chalk. Uh, probably not what is meant in this context. Flint. Uh, again, what is the context? Okay. In one report, winemakers distinctly preferred using terms that invoked place and soil, and they regarded minerality positively, like uh, 
you know, unlike uh, vaguer and negative connotations indicated by some. So they like to look at it as a positive aspect of it. New Zealand, University of New Zealand and UC Davis, both teams noted positive correlations between minerality and words like citrus, fresh, zingy, flinty, and smoky. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the different places have a range of definitions for minerality. Uh, comparison with bottled water is very popular, and this is more often than not used by females. Why? We don't know, but it's just more often than not used by females. The inconsistencies is no surprise that science continues to have difficulty identifying what in wine might be triggering the perception that is minerality. Acidity is one of the earliest published studies uh, with the uh, Riesings and Gruner-Wittlerners. The saline tasting uh, succinic acid has been it has been described as mineral, but it's a weak undertone there, which is most of what you're going to find in, in minerality. Sulfur compounds is also brought up in minerality. Despite an investigating comprehensive list of candidate compounds, studies to date haven't confirmed a clear relationship between minerality and reductive phenomena which we'll talk about reduction, but it's not the same. Tasting statistics give some support to the perception of minerality arising from a lack of other wine flavors, which I, this has been brought up a couple of times here. It has not been substantiated by chemical analysis. The key aromas in Sauvignon Blanc wines, the uh, example of thiols and isobutyl, is not matched by greater perceived minerality. So it doesn't always work. So what about the vineyard? Minerality comes chiefly not from organic compounds produced during vinification, but from the soil, exactly as the name suggests. So this would relate to earthiness, stones, flint, slates, chalkiness, and the rest of stuff like that. There are some work out there that relates minerality to place. For example, a study of Chablis wines from the left and right banks of the Siren River. Those from the left bank, when assessed by smell alone, showed greater minerality. On analysis, they showed more sulfur-bearing or shellfish aroma and lower copper content. But on the right bank, it was a uh, less of a minerality in the, in the odor, if not completely odorless for minerality, perceived minerality. And also on the right bank, the other bank, is where the great crew or the grand crew sites of Chablis are. And that is the classic minerality always described over the years. So scientifically, that doesn't work, but that's the way it is. <coughs> Excuse me. 
earthy words linked with minerality have to be metaphors, mental associations, recollections of past involving rocks and not really the taste. Okay, here's why. Rocks have no taste. And this is a quote from his article again. Any stone surface exposed to the air will now will soon be filmed with all manner of bacteria, algae, molds, lipids, and the like, which are all around us and which produce highly aromatic vapors when warmed on a sunny day or wetted in a shower of rain. Similarly, killed earth, damp cellars, and struck pebbles produce similar smells, but they are not of the rocks themselves. It's easily tested if you access a, to a rock saw and some different kinds of rock. Smooth, freshly sawn surfaces will give a cool, tactile sensation on your tongue, but they will have no aroma or taste. If you lick and smell them blindfolded, you won't be able to tell the rocks apart. It seems to me that talking of a taste of slate and the like has to be involving the imagination in a constructive way, conjuring what it would be like if you were to, if slate would have a taste. All right, <laughs> which is very interesting and quite enlightening. Divines take up dissolved chemical elements from the soil, often called nutrients or just minerals. These elements are slowly unlocked from geological minerals by weathering, but in practice are largely derived from the organic materials in the top meter or less of the vineyard soil. In deep soil, you don't get it. You have layers of it that aren't gonna be affected. Stony soils are often said to promote minerality, but the stones exist because they have resisted weathering. They are inert. So this stony soil is going to give me a lot of minerality. Well, that stony soil has been sitting there for hundreds of thousands of years, and it hasn't broken down any, so that's really not going to give you much of anything except just a stony vineyard, I mean, if you look at it that way. Wine commentators are fond of using phrases like mineral-rich soils, implying that this somehow gives rise to greater minerality in the wine. It certainly sounds seductive, but all rocks and soils are made of geological minerals, not some more than others. If it means rich is nutrient in nutrient minerals, then the same <coughs> me, same as saying fer, uh, fertile. And it's pretty much axiomatic in viticulture that highly fertile soils are to be avoided as they lend to high vigor, lower grape quality, and create poor wine. So you don't want a fertile soil. Nutrient elements are essential for the wine to grow, but their source is irrelevant. The, let's see. A few of these mineral nutrients may survive into the finished wine, joining those introduced during vinification. And while almost certainly they themselves can't be tasted, at least individually, their presence can indirectly influence our taste perceptions. But such effects are complex and circuitous, very different from the notion of directly tasting minerals from the vineyard soil. 
which is a valid point. Most bottled water is drawn from the ground where it has remained for long periods. The average resident time in the United Kingdom is more than a century in direct contact with the host aquifer. So anything that's remotely soluble is taken in by the water, unlike the regulated uptake of cautions by vine roots. Consequently, the mineral concentration in bottled water are typically greater than those found in wine, and crucially, in and in contrast with wine, they can include plentiful anions, which are negative charge, and these are the main inorganic contributors to flavor and mouthfeel. They're saying that the brewing industry is cautious in the water that they use because of the uh, negative charge particles and anions. A brewery in Tadcaster, England, was considering bottling water that they were using that they were pulling up. But they had to stop the plan because they found that the sulfate level was above the legal limits allowed in bottled water. So, finally, if wine minerality was due to mineral nutrients, then it should be easy to enhance it by simply adding more. But, for various reasons, this does not work. As one example, wine tasters report that as the presence of cations becomes increasingly detectable, the taste becomes more and more disagreeable. And because water lacks competing flavor compounds, in wine the detection thresholds must be vastly higher and hence presumably even more distasteful. This doesn't sound like the desirable perception we label minerality. So what then is minerality due to? Don't know. The jury is still out. But maybe we'll find out someday soon. Who knows? But the bottom line for everything I'm telling you tonight about minerality is there's no definition on it. There's nothing that we can say this is minerality because there are so many definitions. And you can't describe something when there is a whole bunch of different definitions. I've detected what I thought was mineralities in wine, and I've said so. I haven't used the word minerality because I haven't been able to find something else. Okay. But I'm not a big fan of minerality. I, I just, somebody says, oh, this has a lot of minerality in it. And I look at it and say, what are you detecting? Because I want to learn. I want to advance my knowledge. And a lot of the times they tend to stumble around when I ask that question. So if you detect minerality in wine, you know, pat yourself on the back, you, that's good. But it isn't always there. And if it is, it's not always detectable. And if it is detectable, it could be too much of it. And so therefore that could end up destroying the wine. Look for it in white wines, not reds. You might find hints of different things in reds, but using white wines because the whites tend to pick it up more. The reds, because of the process and with skins in longer terms, tend to lose its minerality. So there we go, minerality. Uh, bottom line, after talking about it for almost an hour here, 
you probably aren't able to detect it any more than you were before I talked about it because nobody really has a bottom line on it. Waiting for Mike to come back. He does that. He types out tweets and he types out stuff on Facebook. And he types out stuff all the time. And he's always busy doing that. And uh, yeah, that's what as he's doing that, he loses me. I'm, did I lose you, Mike? You there? No, I'm still here. I mean, I'm still. Uh, I show you here, but I can't hear you. Turn on the microphone. Yeah, I'm. I'm here, and I'm streaming out to Facebook. That's for sure. Huh. I know that's going on. Hello. Well, you don't I hear don't me. Know what happened to Mike? Huh? He doesn't hear me. Oh my gosh! Hold on a second. This happened a couple, two or three weeks ago. Oh, he he did something. He moved. There, he's kicking back and forth. So I know he's still there. So you can't hear me. But I can't hear him. <clears throat> wow. You are. Uh, you are hidden from me, Mike. For some reason, I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? No. That's uh, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, like I could say this uh, happened two or three weeks ago, and uh, something wow. happened, he and he disappeared me. at the end. And <laughs> we couldn't figure out why. And I didn't know if I was still on the show, and we didn't know if he was on the show, and we didn't know what was happening. So I ended up closing out the show and. We yeah. Realized might have, that the might show did last to the end. But he disappeared. And he's not here again. So I don't know, Mike. If you're out there, if you can hear me. Oh, Look I am still here. Can... He is. Yes. He is still there. <laughs> but he can't hear me though. So any well, you can hear me. He can't talk to me. So for some reason we have lost the audio of Mike. But that's all right. Uh, okay. I guess so. You can't hear my sound effects either. No, I can't hear anything. I can't hear anything from you. Uh, hmm. He is. He's out there. I know he's out there, but we just can't hear anything from from him that he's doing and all that. So I must be going out on the airwaves, and you all must still be hearing me. But for some reason, uh, <laughs> Facebook is still good and. The show is so good. It's just that Mike is. We don't know. I said I don't so, know. <laughs> since he's trying to figure out the audio problems on so. his end, I will go ahead and close out the show on this end. Okay. And yeah, I'll be able to see next week. Um, go Chiefs! I say that simply because I was born and raised in Kansas City, and I like to see them come in and do a to another Super Bowl win after 50 years. And yeah, it was 50 years ago that they won their last game. Oh my gosh. So that is a long time. Go Chiefs Sunday night. And I, I will watch the ball game simply because I love the advertisements and everything. And also uh, I've got a big bag of wings that we're going to have. So I'm looking forward to that as much as I am the football game this year. So tune in next week. Yeah. And drink responsibly all week long. Enjoy the football game Sunday if you're a football fan. If you're not, then enjoy whatever it is that you have to be doing this weekend, wherever you are. Drive safely and drink responsibly, and we will see you 
back here next week, which is going to be February the uh, the what? I don't have my calendar here like I supposed to. Six. So I it's the sixth. It's February sixth. I'm talking. He can't hear me. It's February. 6th. What is it? February sixth. Uh, <laughs> no. First is Saturday, <laughs> Sunday, second, Monday, third. People on Facebook can hear. Tuesday, fourth, Wednesday, fifth, sixth. There sixth. you go. There you go. All right. It's going to be February the sixth next week. Oh. Sunday, Groundhog Day, too. There's something that's coming up. So we can all look forward to Groundhog Day on Sunday. So, see you back here on February the 6th. Yep. And be safe. Hold that wine. Drink responsibly. Drink lots of wine. And we will we'll see you next day. week. Meet up with them after it does this. Here we go. This concludes tonight's broadcast. He's playing the local one. I'm playing the remote. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. I'm not talking over it, then let me tell you what it's going to say. Be safe, drive responsibly, be good out there, don't do anything bad. And tune in next week. If you need to get a hold of us, go to www.facebook.com all slash all about wine BTR. That's Blog Talk Radio. Or you can email me anytime at allaboutwine101 at gmail.com. Uh, you can listen to archives available anytime. Go to All About Wine and uh, on uh, Blog Talk Radio, mm. and they have all the can you hear? past nope. episodes on there and all that stuff. So, see you next week. Hello. Okay, you can close out Facebook if you haven't done so already. Yeah, and I did cool. not hear the outro, so I just sort of, well, you heard heard me. And have yourself a wonderful week. And thank you, you too. We'll see you next Thursday on All January right. the sixth. And I hope the 6th. issue with your sound is just a quirk and it's not anything serious. Yeah. So that's what I'm thinking. I don't know what we will what it could be. See you next weekend. Okay. God, I wish you could hear me. Thanks, you too.